I heard about these two elderly women that were having a discussion, and they were talking about how hard it is growing old. One lady says to the other lady, well, you know, I really hate it when I forget stuff, when my memory starts to go. And she says, by the way, could, could you tell me what your name is? I've known you all my life, but I can't remember your name. Could you tell me what it is? The other lady says, yeah. Can you wait just a minute? And you know, the, the, the mind sometimes starts to go, and, and we forget things, and uh, it's not uncommon, even for younger people, to sometimes forget things. But there are things that we need to remember, and remembering can really uh, help us as, as we go through life. Um, some things are really more important than other things to remember. I was reading this article this week, and it came from a British newspaper, and it began with the following, heartfelt commensuration to Dorothy Naylor of Plymouth, whose recent day trip to Bridgewater was spoiled when her husband Oliver left her on the forecourt of a garage and drove 17 miles before noticing his wife was not in the car. I couldn't believe he'd gone without me, Mrs. Naylor told the Western Morning News. I usually sit in the back because I can move around more, but normally we talk to one another. The couple, both in their 70s, had pulled into a garage to change a tire. Mr. Naylor drove off and didn't notice his wife's absence until he arrived in Bridgewater. After stopping in town, he asked his wife, where do you want to get out? When she didn't answer, he turned around and discovered that she had been left behind. You know, that's one thing you better not forget if you want to stay married. The article says they've been married for 40 years, uh, but if he keeps that up, it won't be much longer till they won't be. And what about the three elderly men that went to the doctor to have a memory test? And the doctor asked the first man, he says, what is one plus one? And the man said, 274. And the second man, he asked, what is one plus one? He said, Tuesday. And he asked the third man, what is one plus one? He said, that's easy, it's two. And he said, how did you get that? He said, I've subtracted Tuesday from 274. So you know, our minds start to go, and sometimes, uh, you know, the memory fails. But today we're going to learn a biblical lesson about remembering. Because God has got some things He wants us to remember. We continue our series today called Restore. And once things have been restored, it does us good to remember some things. And so we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, as you well know. All these messages are on uh, our website. You can pull them back up if you've missed one. And we're going to think about this idea that God wants us to remember. And I raise the question, why is it important to remember the past? You know, God actually called His people to remember some things about the past. Uh, and He even set up ways for them to do this. Uh, he does it for a good reason, which we'll learn about as we go through and study Nehemiah today. So turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. We did the first 12 verses there 
last week, and we're going to move on from that. In fact, we're going to start at verse 16 in just a minute, and we're going to cover all the way through the end of chapter 12 today. Now, we're not going to read all of that, uh, but we're going to look at some ideas that come out of that section. There's a lot of names and records in there we won't look at. But, but I hope that you will get the gist of what this section of the Bible teaches us. You know, the thing about the Bible is there are many sections that record the history of God's people so that we can learn from them, and it helps us to think through how they handled situations and how we can handle situations, or in some cases, what God wants His people to remember. So we'll begin here in chapter 8, and let me set up uh, this for you. Uh, we saw last week that the people had this sacred assembly, and they came together, they read Scripture, they read specifically from the Law of Moses, and uh, they realized how far from God they had grown, and so they developed this godly sorrow, they were repentant, and then as they were weeping, the leaders called for them to to uh, rejoice and celebrate that day. That brought revival to those people. And when, as we pick up the account today, we're going to see once again the next day they called another assembly. And they came together and they read once again from the Law of Moses. They're starting to get addicted, I think, to reading from the Word of God. And they found a section where God prescribed that they have a festival uh, including a feast and a great celebration. In fact, God had prescribed three different feasts throughout the history of His people. These all to help them to remember some things. One was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And that's when they remembered that, that God's uh, angel of death passed over the people that had blood on their door frames when they were slaves in Egypt. And he restored them. Uh, they had the Feast of uh, Weeks and Pentecost. They remember God's faithfulness to, to bring a, a good uh, harvest to them. And then they had the Feast of the Ingathering or the Tabernacles. And this is the one that they are reading about today. And they are discovering once again what God wants them to do. The Feast of the Tabernacles. Now it was in the seventh month on their sacred calendar... And a tabernacle is what we would call a tent. To them, it was sort of a lean-to. It was made up of uh, branches of luxuriant trees. They put a few poles up and piled branches on top. And it was to remember that when the people were called out of slavery in Egypt, that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And God provided for them along the way. So the people were supposed to leave their homes during this seven-day period, it was from the 15th of the month to the 21st, and they were to live in a tabernacle to commemorate that time uh, that their ancestors went through. We pick up here at verse 16. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company had returned from exile, built temporary shelters, and lived in them. 
From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. Now, it wasn't that they hadn't celebrated this feast before, it's just they hadn't celebrated like this, with this great joy that they had, as we saw they had the day before. The first thing I want you to see is that we need to remember to celebrate what God has done. Now, we're no longer under the law of Moses as they were. We call that the old covenant. We're under a new covenant. So we don't celebrate the holy days that they did. But God used those days for Israel to remember. Uh, to remember what he had done. He led them out of slavery in Egypt where they were for 400 years. Uh, he led them through the wilderness for 40 years until he gave them the promised land he provided for them. And then eventually he gave them the promised land as he said he was, uh, a land flowing with milk and honey where they would prosper. Uh, if you read chapter 9 in Nehemiah, uh, which we won't read today, all of it, but uh, there's a summary there of many of the things that God did for his people. You know, he's given us some ways to remember things in our new covenant. If you think about it for just a minute, uh, he's given us this Lord's Supper that we take every Sunday. That's, that's one of the ways we remember. It's a, it's a visual aid. If you think about it, we remember the bread symbolizes his broken body, his pierced body on the cross. The blood, symbol, the juice symbolizes his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, another way he's given us to remember is through baptism. Uh, we go through baptism, but we, we also see other people baptized. And the Bible tells us to think about that in a way that we're dying to the old self. We're being buried in a watery grave. We come up raised to a new life, just as Christ did. And so those are visual aids. We've also set up some days to help us remember what God has done. We remember at Christmas the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we remember at Easter his death, burial, and especially his resurrection. Those things help us to remember what God has done for us and what he's done in the past. Now, you know, Easter and Christmas are not prescribed in the Bible, but it does us good to commemorate those things. And maybe it's good to remember some other days. I know people that can tell you the day of their baptism and can tell you they remember what that day meant to them and, and how they've changed since that time. Maybe it's good... Uh, of course, it's good to remember the cross. That helps us think about, you know, what, what God was willing to do for us. And maybe there are special days in your life that you should remember when God did something amazing that strengthened your faith. At any rate, it does us good to remember what God has done in the past. It builds hope, and it helps us to trust God. God. Well, turn now to chapter 9, and we'll look at the first three verses there. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God 
for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. So, once again, they read from the Word. Uh, it brought godly sorrow. It brought repentance. It reminded them of the sin in their life. And they began to confess how they had fallen. And, of course, when they did that, that led to worship, to joy. So we need to remember to confess your sins. You know, the festival of the tabernacles was to end on the 21st day of the month. It began on the 15th, ended on the 21st. There was then to be an additional day after the 21st on the 22nd when they had a sacred assembly and rejoiced at, you know, the, month, the, the week of tabernacles being over. This is on the 24th day. So apparently they stayed two extra days. They were so into what was going on. And on this 24th day, they showed up wearing sackcloth. That's this kind of rough, coarse cloth, uh, just made like a sack. And they would do this at times of, of uh, sorrow, at times of repentance, times of grieving. They put black soot on their face or dust, it says in the NIV, or ashes. They were so touched by the Word of God and how it led them to this place of repentance that they wanted to come together at that time. They were brought low and recognized the sin in their life. You know, there are times when we should be brought low like that. When we think about our shortcomings in our life, in the book of James, James in chapter 4 is, is getting on, rebuking a little bit the churches that he's writing to for some sin, their worldliness that they're living by. In James chapter 4, verse 6, he says, But he gives us more, that's God, grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, we're not supposed to have that posture all the time, but it does us good to humble ourselves before the Lord, to, to mourn, to recognize the sin in our lives. 1 Peter 5, 6 reiterates, when we go low, when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. You know, in my personal prayer time, I told you before, and I'll tell you again, I like to use an acrostic as I go through my prayer time. It's P-R-A-Y. And the P stands for praise. Start out praising God. And then the R is for repent. And you know, it does us good to repent, to think about what, where we fall short in God's eyes. Maybe what we need to work on in our lives. The A, of course, is for ask. That's where you ask God for the request that you have. And then the Y is to yield. That's where you just sit back and yield to God, listen and see what he's got to, to, to lead you into and to guide you. But you know, it's been my experience that when we take time to work through something like that, you don't have to do it that way, you just feel better. You start out the day and, and 
Somehow it enables you to better face the day ahead. You know, when it comes to sin, I'm afraid a lot of us are like the choplifter who became a Christian. And he felt very guilty for his sin of shoplifting. And so he wrote a letter to the store where he shoplifted all the time. And he said in the letter, I'm sending you a check for $100 to pay for items that I have shoplifted from your store. I've become a Christian and I'm having great guilt. And if I don't feel better, I'll send more money. You know, that's sort of a partial confession. It does us good to confess it all. In fact, I just read an article uh, this week, new, a new study. It was a couple of years ago. It was titled, I Cheated, But Only a Little. And what they found, they surveyed 4,000 people uh, in this study, people in the United States and in Israel did the study. And Dr. Eel e. Peer, the the study lead author, a surprisingly biblical angle on the results, and he said, confessing to only part of the guilt of one's transgressions is attractive, but it doesn't work. He said in the study they found that those people that totally confessed when they had done something wrong felt so much better than those that didn't confess or those that only confess to part of what they have done. You know, we need to spend. So remember to confess your sin. Now, look down a little further in chapter 9. There to verse 7. And this is what it says. These are the leaders calling the people to stand up. And he's talking to God, and he says, You are the Lord God who chose Abraham, Abram, and brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And you have kept your promise because you are righteous. So we need to remember the covenant that God has established. God established many covenants with people throughout the Bible. A covenant is agreement between two people or two parties or two groups that you have your part and God has his part and he says, I'll live up to my part, now you live up to your part. He made a covenant with Noah. He said, you know, be faithful, I'll never destroy the earth again by water. The rainbow was given as a sign of that covenant. He made two covenants with Abraham. One, he says, Abraham, I'm going to give your people a plot of land where they can build a nation, and this land will be their own. The second covenant he made was to be the God of this people. Then there was a Sinaitic covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. God made this with Moses and the people, that if they would follow the law uh, that he gave Moses, we call it the law of Moses, it comes in the first five books of the Bible, that he would be faithful to them if they would follow that law. He made a covenant with David, King David, the second king of Israel, greatest king of Israel. And he said to David, I, I make a covenant with you, 
I'll always have somebody from your line, from your ancestry, on the throne of Israel if they will remain faithful. And then there's the new covenant. In Jeremiah, God promised that one day he was going to give a new covenant. And he did that with the coming of Jesus. And that's the covenant that we're under. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. The old covenant, which is really consumes all of this, but specifically the law of Moses, was, was a covenant of the law, or a covenant of the letter, as they often called it, because it was written down. And that covenant was you follow these laws. The covenant of grace says, I'm, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to write my laws in your hearts. And you have the ability to follow that law uh, if you will. Of course, we don't always do it, but we often fall short. But God gave these covenants, and we need to remember that covenant. And He says, under the covenant of grace, if you will believe in my Son Jesus, that He died for your sins, if you will repent of your sins, that is, tell God you're sorry. If you will commit to Him in baptism, then He will forgive your sins and send you the Holy Spirit to write that law and help guide you as you go through life. But you know, there's an overarching principle in all these covenants. And God made it clear to, to uh, Abraham back in 17.7. He says, I will establish my covenant this is Genesis 17, 7. As an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants, the people, after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. That covenant says, look, I'm going to be your God, now you be my people. And in fact, over and over again, it says it that way throughout the Bible. In Leviticus 26, 12. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. It says the same thing in Jeremiah 27, 23. In Jeremiah 11, 4, it says the same thing, but it reverses the order. You will be my people, and I will be your God. It does the same thing in Jeremiah 30, 22, and Ezekiel 36, 28. The Apostle Paul quoted this same thing in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Same thing is said in Hebrews 8.10. All the way into the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 7. I will be their God, and this time it says, and they will be my children. You see, that's the covenant God wants with us. And we need to remember that covenant. That God wants to be our God. And He wants us to be His people. That means we seek after Him and we follow Him. You know, I was reading something this week, and it really gave me a great analogy. I heard about uh, this guy. His name was, uh, was Sky Jephunneh, and Sky got, uh, had a fiancé, and before he got married, his fiancé's dad wanted to buy her a new a vehicle, not a new one, a used one. And he thought, Sky thought the vehicle was a piece of junk. But her father wanted to buy it, and she said, what should I do? Should I get the car? Well, he didn't want to go against her father, you know. So he said, whatever your father says, that's what's best. Go ahead and do it. So they, he bought the car for his daughter. 
And then they got married two years later. And right after they got married, the warranty went out on that car and it broke down. And Sky said, I started to take that car back to his driveway and drop it off and tell him he bought it, he could fix it. But he said, when I married my wife, that car became my car. I was now responsible to it. I was in a covenant with my wife. I was going to be her husband. She was going to be my wife and vice versa. And whatever was hers was mine. Whatever was mine was hers. So it was our problem now because I'm with her. And you know, it just kind of hit me as I was reading that. God is in a covenant with us. And throughout the Bible, it talks about him treating his people as a good husband does. So you know what? When we have a problem, when we have a car to break down, it's his problem too. Because we're in a covenant. He's our God. And when we have problems, he's going to begin to go to work. He's going to, he's going to try to lead us and guide us in the best way to handle that problem if we seek him out. So we always got to remember the covenant that God has established. Now, lastly, remember to consecrate yourselves to the Lord. Look at verse uh, 27 in chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres, the musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Natophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Gibeah and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So apparently there was this great celebration to dedicate that wall that they had rebuilt. This was after all the celebrating of the, the Feast of the Tabernacles and all that. And the text indicates there was this dedication service, but it's much more than just dedicating that wall. You know, dedication uh, ceremony is a time of consecration. It's a time of declaring something sacred to the Lord. And so they were saying, you know, God, this is, this is a sacred wall because it surrounds your city. And we're dedicating it to you for your service. And the people were also dedicating themselves. It says the priest and, and the people were all purified. That means they went through some kind of a ceremony, some, some kind of ceremonial washing, or the priest sprinkled water on the people, prayed over the people, maybe anointed them with oil, but they were consecrating themselves to God. And they had this fabulous worship service. You can read in there about that worship service. They had two giant choirs. And they, they marched the choirs. One went one way, one went the other. And they climbed the stairs and went up on the wall around Jerusalem and marched and surrounded the whole wall of Jerusalem. And they had all these different instruments playing. And, and you know what the text says? They could be heard far away. There was so much joy and celebration as they walked around. They weren't just consecrating a wall. They were consecrating themselves to the Lord to follow Him, for Him to be their God 
and for them to be His people. It does us all good to remember to consecrate ourselves from time to time, you know. Hopefully we do that at baptism when we make our commitment to the Lord and we're saying, Lord, I'm yours and I'm dying to the old self and I'm raised to walk in a newness of life. But you know, there's something that's got to go on here in the heart when you do that. You consecrate yourself. And maybe we need to do it again every week when we take communion or when you're in your prayer time at home. You just say, Lord, I just want to remind myself I'm yours and you're mine. And you renew that commitment once again. I came across a prayer this week that I had read before. And it's by John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church. And Wesley is known for his deep thinking and his spirituality. And he wrote this prayer down one time. This is sort of, it was in Old English, but this is brought into modern English. Here's what Wesley prays. I am no longer my own, but yours, God. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or lay aside for you, exalted for you, brought low by you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. In other words, you will be my God, and I will be your people. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. You know, Wesley was once again consecrating himself to God, remembering the covenant, confessing his sin. He was remembering the good that God had done. Here's our connection. Remembering the past helps you to move more purposely into the future. I don't think God wants us to live in the past, try to hold on to the way it used to be. That never works. Life is always changing. Things are always going forward. But it does us good to remember the past, to remember what God has done, to celebrate what He's done, to confess our sins, to renew our covenant, and to consecrate ourselves once again to Him. Ken Blanchard tells a story about a little girl named Chia. And Chia was four years old when her parents had another baby, a little brother. And Chia told her parents over and over, I want to spend time alone with the baby. I have something I want to talk to the baby about. Well, the parents were a little skeptical because, you know, sometimes uh, children are a little uh, jealous of the new baby. They didn't know uh, what she would do or whatever. But finally they gained confidence that she was not jealous and that she would be okay. And so they let her go in the baby's nursery room where the baby was in the crib and talked to the baby alone. But after she closed the door behind her, it popped open a little bit, crack. As any curious parent would do, they peeked through to see what little Chia was saying to the baby. And little Chia bent over the crib and she looked and she said, Baby, tell me what God is like. I'm beginning to forget. 
And I don't know where you're at in your spiritual walk, but if you have forgotten what God is like, it'll do you good to get back into this Word and to begin to remember the good that He's done, to remember the sin that He has forgiven, to remember once again the covenant that He's made with you to be your God if you will be His people, and to remember to consecrate yourself, to dedicate yourself to Him. Let's pray. God, restoration is awesome. And when we get it, we sort of get on this, this up, this, this high. But Lord, unless we remember the past, we won't maintain that feeling. And so I pray that you will help us to remember. To remember you and all that you stand for and the way you want to guide us and direct us as we go through life. And if we will go through this process of remembering, Lord, we will keep that restoration going on in our lives for years to come. We pray, Father, that you help us with this, that your Spirit would infuse in us a desire to be your people so that we truly can live for you, our God. In Jesus' name, I pray and praise. Amen.